the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state, and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You, too, can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned. Because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes, on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, good morning to you. Good morning. And, morning, Henry. Good morning. And last but not <coughs> least, uh, joining us for this week's uh, roundtable, former high-ranking government official in two presidential administrations, Mark Everson from Mississippi. Good morning, Mark. <laughs> good morning, gentlemen. Hi, Mark. Good morning. And as always uh, is the case, we start out armchair politics with uh, a couple of quotes that got my attention this week. But first, the uh, finish the quote where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes, it always seems impossible until. Until someone does it. That's basically it. It always seems impossible until it's done. You know who that's uh, yeah. credited to? Yeah, um, I think it relates to that horse that won the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> That's good, good point, Mark. Yes, yeah, exactly. And it also could be Elon Musk. It was Nelson Mandela. Oh, okay. who said that? Great um, choice. Here's, but I like Mark's suggestion that it had something to do with <laughs> the horse that uh, had the big upset at the Kentucky Derby. Um, but here's one that got my attention. They're all our children, and the reason you are the teachers of the year is because you recognize that. They're not somebody else's children. They're like yours when they're in the classroom. Uh, the president of the Michigan State I was going to say education. Jill Biden. Who? I'm going to say Jill Biden. Yeah, yeah, Jill Biden. I'm going to say some kind of education rally. Or it was Joe Biden. Well, Joe Biden. Oh, Joe. President. She tells him what to. She tells him what to say. <laughs> as, as is the case in most marriages, Mark. Um, yeah. 
President Joe Biden was paying tribute to some of the best educators in the country at a White House Teacher of the Year event. Some have taken objection to this statement, adding to the concern about how some subjects like critical race theory are taught in schools. Um, there were people who really balked at the idea that that he would make the remark that um, that somehow these kids were like the teacher's own children instead mm. of the children of their parents. Um, how is this offensive to people? I would say that was uh, probably a misconception. Teachers must feel that Students are the children so they can embrace the space around them and for safety, for education, and a demonstration of love. I know that they have the space around them and, and there's no touching and stuff like that. They encourage that. But that's creating a scary kind of a atmosphere in the room uh, and dividing kids more yeah. than they need to be divided. Henry, yeah, Henry I'm, I'm with you 100% on that. You know, I'm a good, solid, old uh, Reagan-Eisenhower Republican, you know, some would call it a rhino, but I was very skeptical of the schools. Uh, and then I came down to Mississippi, and, and uh, I've been very active in the schools. And I've got to tell you that particularly for people who are struggling or lower income or they have broken, you know, no fathers and everything else, the schools are where it's at. It's exactly what you said. If the teacher doesn't step up, and bring some order into the life. Nobody else child. will. Yeah. Nobody yeah. else will. That's Nobody right. else and will. And how many times well, have you, know, you heard teachers refer to my kids? Yeah, sure, all the time. Yeah, yeah. And and again, unfortunately, that issue has become so politicized about you know, gee, who controls the curriculum, the teachers or the parents, <laughs> kind of stuff. And it, you know, it never used to be an issue like that. But now you see these battles at school board meetings about you know critical race theory or wearing masks or a few other odds and ends here or there, and it's it's become an odd way to polarize the thing, an area that had never been polarized much before. What I would say is interesting. My, yeah, I think it is dangerous, and my observation is that the real split has been caused uh, not by the teachers electing to teach stuff that's marginal, and some of it is, but it's about the imposition of, of standards from administrators. That, well, if you look across the country, We've had an incredible growth in the number of administrators, and they have nothing to do. So they're sitting there, uh, you know, filling out government yeah. forms, and, it, and, and they're developing new policies to try and fix every problem. You can't fix every problem. You can only fix the problems if you let the teachers teach and do what we're talking about. Yeah, some truth in that. You know, yeah, even yeah. in this uh, difficult time, you should see, and I observed this, you should see the number of kids in elementary they come up and hug their teachers, just bond with great spontaneity. That means that they have a gravity between the teacher and the student. If, if students are moving away from you, you should be concerned. But uh, uh, particularly the women teachers, they do a good job. Teachers do a good job. There's nobody that can do their business better than teachers. You can talk all of the politics you want to, and rights and wrongs and good and bad, but nobody knows how to teach uh, kids like a You know, and Henry, because of all the the, uh, the uh, divisiveness and the partisanship and, and the teachers, fairly the number of people going into teaching is declining dramatically, particularly here yes. in Michigan. Yes, uh, it so is. There's going to be a real change right. in the years to come. 
Let me tell one quick story about the magic of this. Yesterday, I, I had an eye exam, and the uh, technician who was helping me, I was talking to her, and she has a son who's six and in the first grade. is down here on the Mississippi coast. And we were talking about the schools and the virus and everything. And he said, she said uh, I asked, had her kid been in school? And she said, yes. And he said, he told a sweetest story. Uh, his teacher, I can't remember what her name was, Miss Jones, had been wearing a mask. And the kid came home from school yesterday and said, or the day before, said, Miss Jones didn't wear a mask today. She's so beautiful. And you know, <laughs> this, is the, this is the first grader. The first oh, my God. <laughs> Indeed. And he had a great, clearly a great relationship with his mom, but it's magic. It, it is magic <laughs> yes, in the classroom. And, and if, you, if you make these teachers so gun-shy and so... Oh, afraid, that's not going to get us anywhere. It's not going to get us where the conservatives want us to be. Well, here's another quote that got my attention last week. Let's be clear. Women in my state and states all over America are going to die because of this position. Mm, Dana Nessel? Uh, Great call, uh, Paul. It, it, It was, in fact... Oh. Uh, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, a Democrat, made the statement during a Sunday appearance on NBC's Meet the Press. She said she's standing her ground, refusing to enforce what she calls a draconian law from 1931, which would make abortion illegal in Michigan if Roe v. Wade is overturned. Several prosecutors in Michigan and around the country have made similar comments. Will the resulting chaos and confusion beg for a new federal ruling or legal hmm. standard? Hmm. I'm. It may beg for it, but I suspect what we're going to get is fifty different states and thousand different local jurisdictions doing their own thing. You know, but everybody's uh, not everybody. Uh, it was ridiculous. We um, understand, but a lot of people are saying, you know, that that it's appropriate to overthrow um, Roe v. Wade and send it back to the states and that it should be a states' rights issue. And it's, um, or not a states' rights issue, but an issue decided by the states. Right, yeah, yeah. But it just seems like there are going to be, as you point out, Paul, 50 different versions of what the rulings are and are some states going to make it illegal to travel to other states and you know all of that is is going to go on at some point the same people are saying you know it ought to be decided by the states are going to say we need uh you know some federal oversight of this you know, and as you point out, not only could you have 50 different states, but as Dana Nessel pointed out, she's not going to enforce the law, but the county prosecutors can. So you've got 83 counties in Michigan. You can have 83 counties doing 83 different things about that, about the policy. I mean, all over the ballpark. And if you remember, if we go back to 1789, they tried to figure out, well, why do we want to federalize states so that we have a common voice or a common uh, statements about the law, and so that they apply equally across the the boundaries of the country. But well, that funny. Was a how good do we how do we do that? How do we look well, at no. that? The you know the Constitution is written in such a way that it enumerates certain federal um, 
powers or responsibilities and then leaves the rest up to the states and um and and yet we find ourselves uh, and the federal government has always been there to sort of settle differences between the states um where do we where do we draw the line there when we we just don't deal with it federally let the states decide or does does it automatically once we turn it over to the states become an issue where the states can't agree or or aren't compatible with each other and and then we need the federal government to step in and and set some sort of uh, federal standard well we can't solve it we can't leave it this way it, we got to come up to the things have to come to a conclusion and so that we all understand what the law is or ought to be. But we, otherwise, we will probably erupt into 49 different states, 50 states that are different, and disassociate from the union. You know, it looks like that's the way we want to go. Everybody wants to go in a different direction, and we can't do that. Well, I well, I don't know. I don't. It doesn't particularly trouble me that states take it, different decisions on some of these issues, and I don't think they have unlimited powers. I'd be really surprised if one state could say that someone is forbidden to travel to another state and do something that's legal in that state. It's like saying, okay, uh, <laughs> we, our speed limit is sixty-five, but you got over into Michigan and it's fifty-five, so we're going to. Uh, uh, you know, or I'm sorry, it'd be the other way around. It would be the people from Michigan chase uh, chase the guy into uh, <laughs> into the next state because he's suddenly right. 65 instead of 55. You can't do that. And and um, the question is, is this a, a, a the only question here is, is this a right guaranteed in the Constitution that gives the federal government the right to uh, to step in? Otherwise, the states, as they have in many ways, look at. Look at the pandemic. One of the things I've said this on this show that I find reassuring about our democracy in the pandemic was that different states did different things. Different school boards took different decisions based on their understanding of the circumstances. And so once you reach a decision, if you do, that this is not a bedrock constitutional right, then it does go to the states yeah. unless the, unless the, unless the yeah. Congress steps in. Unless the Congress that was good. In. That was good to me. It'll be, but I agree with everybody. This will take a long time. This, this will stick through. There are certain states will overreach. The Texas thing, I, I find it troubling. They created the statute to get citizens to snitch on or bring actions on other citizens. I don't think that's uh, really effective no. or right, in, right yeah. in this case. That creates nothing but conflict within conflict. Yeah, it's going to be a hot-button issue for a long time to come on the state and local level. Well, yes. on, on that note, we need to take a short break, but we're going to have some local stuff uh, coming up after the break, which is always a little fun for Mark, I think. He wasn't with us when we had the uh, story about the uh, Flint School Board president who got up from her chair and <laughs> went over and pummeled the treasurer in the middle of a finance committee meeting. Um but we're going to have some uh, fun stuff about city council and the water settlement and all that coming up after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More Armchair Politics is straight ahead. Everybody's doing 
it on Brand New Dance Now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Welcome back, everybody, as we continue with today's edition of Armchair Politics. Mark Everson joining our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter. A city councilwoman is proposing a rule to put a cap on meetings that have been known to go on for several hours. Quote, we are known for our record marathon meetings, and just because you are there long does not mean you're getting business done, said Flint City Councilwoman Dr. Liddell Lewis. And so I wanted to put a cap on that because staying in 10 to 12 hour meetings, it's abuse. Lewis proposed capping council meetings at 10 p.m. during a May 4th, uh, 22 council committee meeting in hopes to incentivize the council to work efficiently. In October of 2021, Flint Mayor Sheldon Neely announced that city officials would be allowed to leave council meetings at 9 p.m., stating that the long meetings impede on staff members' ability to serve residents the following day, rested and fully alert. Lewis said that uh, that announcement was very telling. So if the administration can't be there past 9 p.m., then why do we still need to be here past 10 p.m., she said. The council did not act on the proposal or the proposed rule. It will be part of several rule revisions that members have been working on since late last year. Will the council pass a rule like that? And if they do, will they obey a rule like that? <laughs> I would suspect the answer to both of those may be no, <laughs> only because I'm not sure they can pass anything when I watch them. Just but if they do pass it, it uh, board members are obligated to leave. They are obligated to uh, follow the rule. If they do, you're right, Henry. That much yeah. is true. Yeah. I suppose they'll turn off the lights or something at 10 o'clock. If yeah. They, can actually pass it. <laughs> <laughs> they would really be in the dark then, <laughs> wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> Not sure they know the difference. <laughs> Yeah, probably the only the only city council in the Midwest with a last call. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, some of those meetings go on ten. I think there was one that went twelve hours, almost to three or four o'clock in the morning, uh, one time. But it's bizarre. <clears throat> and and guys, everybody who's ever served on a committee knows that there is a schedule, a process, a protocol to a meeting. And there are ways that the meeting needs to be conducted. They are basically through committees. And committees report back to the main body exactly. of their findings. And if committees are empowered to do that, and they do it, I don't see a, a board meeting leading longer than two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right, Henry. I, I, I can't see anybody really paying attention or being being thoughtful after six, eight, or ten-hour meetings. You've you got to be just so zo- so uh, zoned out by that time that nobody's going to be paying attention. But but they do it. I mean, I, this past Monday, it was, uh, I'm not sure how long it went, but it was endless bickering. I watched for about two hours, and it was, uh, they, didn't, they accomplished almost nothing except bickering with each other. And, and now, there are some circumstances, there are some circumstances, guys, where the board, the chair appeals to the board and say, 
would it uh, would the board like to proceed another half an hour? And with common agreement, you can do that. Yeah, yeah. If there were emergencies yeah. or unusual yeah. circumstances, but, yeah, there's But even even ten o'clock. That's that's a five. They started usually around four thirty or five o'clock most days. Oh well, no! So kidding. it's a five hour meeting even then. <laughs> so uh, when I was uh, married in the uh, second Bush administration, my wife was also working in the administration. She worked with Al Gonzalez in the council office, and she said at one point, she said. She felt that, that the length of deliberation was inversely proportional to the importance of the issue. And, uh, <laughs> that was good point. Good point. <laughs> and I yeah. think there's a fair degree of truth about that. People will go on and fight forever on some very, you know, small problem. I've got my closest friend that lives out in Michigan and for years. He was uh, on the board of selectmen. And he said they had interminable fights about whether there was going to be a roundabout in one particular intersection in town. It just went on for months. And uh, I think there's some truth to that, that, that overall statement. Yeah. So I favor the limits. As, a, as an outsider who, who hears a lot about Flint, time to time I favor limiting the meeting. That would and be a step besides, in that direction. The longer you go, uh, statistics shows that you're likely to develop conflict. The longer you go. And this is shown over and over in the city council meetings. And and Conflict Paul, did did you say in your note to me yesterday that uh, that Eric Mays um, was escorted out again? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I, I watched for a couple hours on Monday night, and after a while, Eric was escorted. He was he was not handcuffed this time, but the two police officers did escort him out. Now uh, is that a, two is that two meetings in a row? Hmm, I believe that's right. And so. was and and if we go back three meetings, is that the one where he was removed by the council as president? I uh, I believe so. I think yes. So. Yes. Yeah. And he still claims he's president occasionally when he gets going. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but but guys, there is something that the council needs to be more cognizant of. Now they tried the uh, corporate way to deal with uh, Eric. Eric is too popular to uh, do it corporately. you got to do some other way. Uh, you got to do some, uh, what do they call it, uh, for kids, uh, when you, you try a special treatment of the kids. Um, Time out? No, not that, no, but no, uh, no. You, uh, instead of using corporate means of dealing with well, it sounds uh, to me like Eric's getting a time out pretty much every meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, what they tried to do Monday, they 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 tried to pass a a motion to ban him or exclude him for thirty days, and it failed. They needed a two thirds vote, I think, or a three quarters vote. Yeah. And it failed yeah. to get that. So, although it got a majority, but not not the 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 the, the extra majority, so he did not get kicked out for thirty days. <clears throat> That was the the thing that they did to um, Kate Fields. That's right. That's right. Yeah. When she was still <clears throat> on the council. Anyway, it's um, <laughs> it's an ongoing saga, to be sure. <laughs> well, the deadline for filing claims for a part of the Flint Water settlement with the state of Michigan and <laughs> others has been extended. U.S. <clears throat> District Court Judge Judith Levy signed an order Monday 
extending the claims period from May 12th to June 30th for those who previously registered to take part in the $626 million settlement. Levy's action came in response to a request from Special Master Deborah Greenspan, who said in a report to the court that many of those who registered to file claims have faced difficulties in obtaining the necessary documents and putting together the required information. Should deadlines be pliable? I suppose depending depends. on the circumstances, they might yeah, be. I, I, I've heard that a rather small fraction of people actually have turned in the forms. I mean, whether they plan to or not, I don't know. <clears throat> um, what struck me you know, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, Paul, that that in order to qualify for a piece of the settlement, there are requirements. There's a checklist that you have to turn in certain forms. I suspect yeah. that many of those forms that are being requested don't exist. Well, I think that's true. Yeah, probably true. <laughs> yeah. I, I think they're I, uh, asking people to jump through hoops, and they haven't made the hoops yet. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I live in Flint, and I, I, I did not even file, because, I mean, frankly, to be honest, we don't have any claim. I, I, I can't point to any kind of loss we had because of the water situation or no health issues of any consequence. Uh, I, over, the, over that time, we replaced one water heater, but I couldn't prove that it was tied to the water and the lead in the water. It was an old water heater anyhow. So, yeah, I didn't even bother filing. And I do live in the area. I could have, I guess, theoretically. But uh, I, I looked at the, the initial forms they sent out, and uh, there was no way I, I saw them making a reasonable claim on any of those grounds. But, Paul, that's a good example of what a civic duty of a citizen ought to be. You ought not try to drain the treasure just because you can. Yeah, but, and to be honest, I, I do know some people just file because they've heard you're supposed to. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you know, there may be people who kind of heard, oh, you got a file, so they put the, their name in the, in the hat. And now they realize that they haven't got anything near the documents they need to, to prove anything at all. Yeah, well, that's lofty thinking that people won't it won't go for a benefit unless they deserve it. The, the story, uh, you know, a friend of mine was down here in Katrina, after Katrina. Uh, he was online by the Baptist Church. <laughs> And, uh, you know, a long line of cars, this was a couple months later, you know, when the schools or the pre-K had started again. And a, a, guy, uh, a guy pulled in behind him and said, what are they giving out? And he got online because he saw it. And, 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 to which my friend said, children. You know, <laughs> he was picking up his kid after school. The point is, there's sort of two kinds of... Uh, there are sort of two kinds of citizens here, that, and that's what you're getting at. There there's some people who um, will take advantage of anything, and there's some who really deserve something, and they won't take it. And they're the ones, what, this, what the city should be doing, if it's had a problem on this, is having community organizations working with the people who they believe were damaged and help them provide the documentation. That's what you need to do. Uh, but to just sort of willy-nilly extend deadlines, Tom, to your question, I don't think that's a... That's the right way to answer it, unless you have some sort of support mechanism in there to make sure that people, uh, unlike uh, Paul, who may have been really damaged, make sure they get a benefit here. 
Well, I think part of the problem here, Mark, is, you know, even though there have been people who have been available to advise and there have been a number of different kinds of resources and, and services made available to people in Flint, there is this this big legal class action settlement with the, the state and, and uh-huh. some of the other players. And I think that in setting up the settlement, they, they set up all kinds of rules, but they never set up the side on the other side of it that showed people what the rules were and provided the paperwork that that people need to have to to justify their request so they've asked them to justify their request without creating any method for justification (laughs) i'm agreeing with you you need a structure there because uh, many of the people will just say they'll throw up their arms and say it's too uh too too complicated why bother but then there needs to be more said than extend the deadline that the the new deadline i agree the new deadline yeah. then has to be um, a, a deadline set for the government to provide the necessary uh, resources and tools that people need to, um, you know, appropriately request and, and uh, um, meet the deadline. Well, look, think, it's, and also, when, it, when have things reached the point where they're good enough? It's the same story like now. Uh, the president has extended several times the moratorium on paying down student loans. Uh, when is it that everything is good enough that everything people have to pay to start paying those off again? It's just, you know, there, it, that's a tough thing. Once yeah. you've got a benefit, it's very, it's very hard once you've got a benefit to, to say, you know, okay, enough and that. That's true. And, that's and, true. and I, I agree with Mark because this has been at my crawl all the time. Uh, trying to extend more and more democracy to everybody so everybody is equal um, without definition or the philosophy that uh, makes this uh, a, a realistic kind of endeavor. But trying to extend all of this democracy to everybody in the same way that... Uh, we all have it if we are fortunate enough to to uh, live well. You know, uh, I, it's ridiculous. I, I made a similar observation, Mark, a couple of years ago um, when we were talking about some some local economic development issues and in federal and state grant dollars were being given to some uh, basically private developers to right. work on city projects uh, or projects in the city, specifically in the downtown area. And these these kinds of grants and support systems and tax abatements and all of these, these benefits for these businesses have been going on for 20-plus years. And the, the question I asked is, at what point have we invested enough that we start attracting private dollars. You know, mm-hmm, when right. when do we quit, you know, underwriting these things with tax dollars? Yes. Right? Yes. When is it good enough? <laughs> you know, when? Yeah. It, and that's the point that Mark's making. When have we gotten to the point where it's good enough that we start doing things the normal way instead of making special 
accommodations. Anyway, you know, in, in terms of that, I recall my in Illinois, my my brother wasn't had a small business going, and he always sort of resented the fact that the new businesses got the tax breaks, but he had been there for a while and tended not to get those sort of things and felt there was it was unfair that uh, the new guy and <laughs> new guy and <coughs> excuse me new guy in the block got the tax breaks, but he he tended not to. But you know. <coughs> There's a, there's this thing going on that we've been dealing with for us uh, 20 years maybe, is that people want to be victimized. They see somebody victimized, like the people in Katrina, or the people shot up in Florida, or somewhere else, and and uh, everybody thinks that a victim is uh, the ideal uh, posture to have in the society. And I, I think that that's leading to an unbelievable uh, position for a democracy to have. You know, we just we, yeah. we can't provide all of the things that everybody needs with government dollars. There's only so many dollars in the box. There are things that I want that I'll never get, you know, because... There's not enough money, and besides, I don't take public dollars anyway. Yeah, I've wanted a 1962 Rolls Royce since I was yeah, about, true. Since I was about yeah. 15 years old. Uh, yeah, and, was, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for my Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think so. But we give people a kind of a, a lucid view that this is all possible, but it's not all possible. It just keeps, creates more conflict. Well, let's see. Um, the county's medical health officer says a lawsuit that claims her appointment is null and void because she never took an oath of office amounts to nothing more than a politically motivated <coughs> attack designed to waste time and precious taxpayer resources. Attorneys for Dr. Pamela Hackert and three critics of her response to the COVID-19 pandemic argued Monday whether Genesee Circuit Court Judge Brian Piquel should issue a declaratory judgment against Hackert and the County Health Department. Is this a political attack and is canceling people the modern goal of political attacks? Hmm. Looks like it. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I guess the question I would have is, is is it essential to have that, assuming the oath wasn't taken, I mean, I, I'm gathering that was the case, is that essential to taking the position, or is that just simply a ceremonial thing? I, um, somewhere I Yeah, I wondered that, about that too, Paul. Somewhere, no, somewhere I read, uh, when, when, they, when there was an assassination of a president, I, I, I read that automatically the VP becomes president, even without taking the oath. There are some folks who say, well, geez, so-and-so didn't take the oath until so many hours after an assassination in past history. But from from what I read at one point, that the that once the president has died, for whatever reason, the vice president is the president, with or without having taken the oath. Yeah, I've and read that, that, too. I, and, um, and specifically with regard to... Um, Johnson swearing in on the plane coming exactly, back from yeah. Dallas that that was completely unnecessary but Johnson calculated that it was a visual must for the yeah. country and for the world that was more more PR than uh, than policy and there's that famous picture that's been circulated for decades of him being sworn in on the plane with Jackie nearby that's true 
But Johnson was a shrewd politician. But well, I can you say, know, like, is the... symbolically, you can see why they do it, and you know, I, I yeah. think that I think uh, when Teddy Roosevelt took over, when McKinley died, I think it was there was some real delay there because Roosevelt was on some camping trip or something at the time, as I recall. And but again, the, my understanding was, as soon as McKinley had died, Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, took over. He was president, with or without the swearing in. <clears throat> But but the question, is, I think the point is he didn't he didn't know it because you're right he was up on a mountain or something in yeah. upstate New York or New England or someplace that's right yeah he don't think he knew that he was president for a long time <laughs> true true that um, but the the question here is is the initial oath a legal function. Uh, well, you're, you know, that's a question. That's a question of Michigan state statute, and there's a difference between something that's constitutional that we're talking about with with uh, you know Johnson or Roosevelt, and so a civil servant or an elected official. It may say in the state statute, it may specify that each employee takes an oath, and that, and it and it probably gives the form of the oath. Otherwise, everybody would take a different oath. I mean, I can tell you that they would they would add words to it or subtract words from it, but. But I think that I, my guess would be that the oath is in statute someplace in Michigan. Well, then that gets back to I, I'm assuming that these are the same people who were raising complaints uh, a couple of weeks ago um, about her um, being offended. They made some public comments about about her personally because of their dissatisfaction with her handling of COVID-19 and she left the meeting she you know basically said I'm not gonna you know be treated this way because they were personal attacks and then she came back to the meeting and there, there were people said you know that she should be removed from office and so on and here a couple of weeks goes by and all of a sudden it turns out hey she never took the oath <laughs> it's 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 like a whole new way of saying you know we got to get pamela hackard out of there and and yeah. it, it is a political attack and, yeah. and it's and it's over the covid-19 thing which is what she was hired to do the presiding officer can call uh, the point to order that no personal attacks by anyone on this individual. The, the whole you thing, know, I it, think, uh, revolves around her rec um, saying that in Genesee County, masks had to be worn by certain age students in public schools. Right, yeah. Where was the source of authority for that? <clears throat> was that in law she's or ruling? Well, she's the Genesee County um, yeah, but, health official. Yeah, health, health department. But she has to have the source of authority. Is she the authority herself? Well, or at, at the time, um, and I don't know how legal these opinions were, but there were opinions supporting her from the county sheriff and from the county prosecutor. Again, I don't know if they're you know, empowered to, to make those kinds of rulings the way maybe an attorney general would be. Um, hey, we've got to take another break here, but uh, we'll get back into this and continue armchair politics after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. And don't forget, if uh, 
there's an interview or an episode of Armchair Politics that you've missed and you want to check it out, you can always go to our website and go to the show archive and scroll through hour by hour and pick it out and give a listen. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet? Rocker or glider? So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice. Vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage? Basketball or soccer? So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov slash vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. 
But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back to today's edition of Armchair Politics with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Mark Everson. Michigan <coughs> voters will consider a resolution on the November 2022 ballot that would reform term limits for state elected officials and increase financial transparency among office holders. <coughs> the Michigan House and Senate both approved a ballot proposal Tuesday that would amend the state's constitution so a person could not be elected as a state legislator for terms totaling more than 12 years in both the House and the Senate. That is a slightly shorter stint than the total 14 years in office allowed under the state's current term limits. Both the House and the Senate overcame the two-thirds threshold needed to approve the resolution for placement on the November ballot. The uh, the resolution passed 76 to 28 in the House and 26 to 6 in the Senate. Are you surprised that legislators would vote together to shorten their terms? I am surprised, yeah. I mean, I I yeah. know there was that sentiment against term limits, but this this doesn't sound like it's going to fix much at all. I mean, it kind of tweaks it a little bit, but... Uh, I'm not sure it's going to change anything in terms of the problems with term limits. Um, <clears throat> and I know they didn't they attach a thing about some, some financial disclosure as well, which may make it a little more saleable. But as far as the term limit issue, I, I, I don't see any dramatic changes. Uh, in fact, maybe it's almost a half a step back, as you say, in some ways. Well, if you, if you want to move forward, there was some action on uh, FOIA, too, um, Governor, yeah, that's what, Governor that's what Gretchen Whitmer signed legislation Monday expanding Michigan's Open Meetings <clears throat> Act to mandate at least an audio recording of meetings of certain state boards. House Bill 4705, introduced by Representative Luke Meerman, a Republican from Coopersville, requires public meetings of state licensing boards, commission panels, and rulemaking boards to be recorded. Recordings can be audio-only, video recordings or live broadcasts. The Open Meetings Act is Michigan's law requiring public bodies to make their meetings and actions accessible to members of the public. Under the OMA, certain panels have to provide notice of when they are meeting, providing uh, or provide agendas of uh, what they will discuss and record minutes of those meetings. Transparency and accessibility are critical to ensuring people trust their state government, Whitmer said in a news release. Expanding the Open Meetings Act to require audio recordings of public meetings will help Michiganders have more confidence in their public bodies. Transparency in Michigan's government has been subject to scrutiny. It's one of the few states that does not subject the legislature to freedom of information laws, which allows members of the public to request and receive public records. The governor's office is also not subject to FOIA. 
Bills to extend open records laws to the governor's office and legislature are pending in the state legislature. During her 2018 campaign for governor, Whitmer said she would use executive powers to subject the governor and lieutenant governor's officers to the law if the legislature did not pass such a bill, although that has not happened yet. Do you think the governor or the state legislature will open themselves up to FOIA requests? Well, I think most states in the country uh, do open themselves up. All but two. All but two. (laughs) Michigan and Massachusetts, I think. Yes, I think we're we're, we're, we're kind of a bottle there. (laughs) Eventually, uh, We've been very, very reluctant to do that, so, I mean, we'll see how it plays out, but... uh, I was surprised to learn that we were among the few states that are very, very reluctant to have to open things up like that. So the the point uh, is made that that eventually there's a trend out there, and and everybody can't be wrong. Forty-eight of those fifty states can't be wrong. So, uh, Tom, I have to step away from the round table for 30 minutes. I'll be right back. <coughs> for for how long, Henry? Uh, about uh, 20 to 30 minutes. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Well, we'll see you I'm when sorry, you get guys. back. You just, just call back in when you Okay. When you're Thank done. you. <coughs> okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, four vacant seats in the Michigan House were filled Tuesday as special <coughs> elections were held in the state's four most populous counties. Unofficial results show Democrat Carol Glanville winning the 74th District, Republican Mike Harris winning the 43rd District, Democrat Jeffrey Pepper winning the 15th District, and Republican Terrence McCoskey winning the 36th District. I don't know if anybody else noticed, but that was two Republicans and two Democrats. Each newly elected representative's term is set to expire at the end of the year. The special elections were for all vacant districts, which will be replaced by newly drawn lines. Candidates run in those new districts this fall and take office in 2023. Does filling out the balance of these seats give these candidates any advantage campaigning in the new districts? Uh, well, of course, it depends on what the districts are, but if they're similar, I suppose being an incumbent is always an advantage, usually an advantage. But in, if the districts are dramatically changed and they're, you know, 90% new territory, it may not matter much at all. Well, name recognition is important. That's all I can say. Yeah. And if it yeah, helps your name recognition. Yeah, if you're an incumbent and you can say, you know, Representative so-and-so is running for re-election, even with some new territory, it's going to be an advantage, I would guess, rather than simply being one more candidate. So, Is this, uh, let's see, in an, uh, yeah, I've got time to squeeze this in. Um, in an upset win Tuesday, Democrat Carol Glanville defeated Republican Robert Regan in a special election for a Michigan House seat that had only ever been held by a Republican. 
Results remain unofficial, but with all precincts in the district reporting, Glanville led Regan by more than 1,500 votes. As of 10.30 p.m., she topped 51% of the total votes cast. Regan garnered 40% and 7.9% uh, went to write-ins. The district was one of four House districts with special elections to fill vacant seats on Tuesday. A number of municipalities also had local proposals on the ballot. Those were those four I just mentioned. Um, is this a hint that the new districts will shake up the balance of the Michigan congressional delegation and, and party lines? Oh, I, from the maps I've seen, I think it very well, very well might. Uh, at, at the very least, most of them seem more competitive than they were in the past, and uh, we may see some dramatic changes. What's striking to me about that is eight uh, <clears throat> percent in write-ins. That's stunning to me. Right yeah, in it takes true. an extra takes an extra effort to write, you know, in Tom Sumner, and uh, maybe it just that's a lot. A lot of that's a big number, eight percent. That is a big number. That surprised me, too. I kind of wonder, was anybody running a write-in campaign during in, in those districts? I mean, people try that occasionally. You know, either, either with a direct write-in or a sticker campaign of some kind. Well, Regan... some organized effort. Regan is the one... I don't know if you remember this, Paul, and I don't know if we covered it on the show last week or week before, but... He's the one who made those um, really strange remarks about rape victims. Um, oh yes, laying yeah, back and enjoying it, or something yes, to that yes. effect. And that, um, if he had been favored to win in that district, um, that maybe those remarks did him in. <laughs> yeah, definitely yeah, took that, the wind out of right. his yeah, sails, yeah. and rightly so. Exactly. Yeah, they they were really strange remarks, and and I think it, um, and and I think it was part of the discussion of uh, the the leaked uh, proposed Supreme Court decision on Roe hmm. v. Wade. Well, it wasn't right. on Roe v. Wade, but it would impact Roe v. Wade, and a right. lot of discussions got started and people were saying, well, what about rape and incest and all this other thing? And and this guy comes out with this ridiculous thing about... Um, <laughs> that, that can turn off an awful lot of voters pretty quickly. Well, and, and it, it seemed to have. Um, actually, we have uh, one more thing we're going to talk about that has to do with uh, the state, the new... Uh, congressional districts in Michigan after we take a break here at the top of the uh, at the top of the hour and um, and then we'll we'll get into uh, some of um, what's going on in Washington in uh, and and we'll get a chance to hear some real expertise from Mark <laughs> when, when, <laughs> when we get into the second half of armchair politics. And uh, Henry is uh, standing down for a little while. He had a, a conflict, a meeting or something, and he'll rejoin us when he's, uh, when he's available a little later on. But in the meantime, we're going to um, take a short break and um, for uh, top-of-the-hour show ID. And uh, 
Well, I've got about 40 seconds here. Oh, I just, um, I'll, I'll just say thanks again to um, Rich Cohen for uh, joining me for the first hour this morning. I don't know if you got a chance to hear any of that, Paul. But Yeah, I do. I heard, I heard the last part of it at least this morning. Talking about uh, Herbie Cohen in uh, the world's, uh, what, greatest negotiator. Right. The guy who... Interesting discussion. It, it, it really was, and... and uh, and Herbie was kind of an interesting guy, and, and Rich has written a, a book about his dad, Herbie Cohen. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.